Merry Christmas. Finally here. Well, we're celebrating it today because I'm not going to be here tomorrow. <laughs> but it's a blessing to gather together as believers and especially on Christmas, right? This is what the Christian life is all about. This is, uh, you know, we don't worship a baby in a manger. We worship a risen Lord. But it's very important that we realize that it all started not in the manger, but way before that in time and in history. And we've taken a break from our, if you're new to our church or visiting, we usually teach through books of the Bible, and we're teaching through the Gospel of John now. But we've taken a break for that for Christmas, and uh, we're in a little series, just a two-week series, entitled Our Down-to-Earth King our down-to-earth king. And last week we, we looked in Matthew chapter 1. I've never taught from Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 17 on Christmas, but I did last week. And it's the genealogy, if you're not familiar. It's, a, it's the stuff you skip over, right? You want to get right to Jesus, and Jesus was born. You don't want to read through all these names, so-and-so begat, so-and-so begat, so-and-so. But that's what we went through. And we found very simply that God uses ordinary people. And even in the lineage of Jesus, the Savior, there were some pretty messed up people in his background. He was perfect in every way, but his family was not. And some of you may be here today say, man, I can identify with that. Man, my, my family's a, a basket of nuts, but fruits and everything else. But you know what? On the other hand, this is the time we gather with them. And so I'll be praying you have patience you have grace with your families as you gather together and understanding that, you know what, when you come together, sometimes there's conflict, but it's, it's when you focus on the right things, you can lessen that conflict and just live, live for Christ uh, the next few days in the presence. And Lord, I, I, I also want to just say that, um, you know, sometimes, you know, Christian, Christians can be very celebratory about Christ and Christmas, and that's true, we are. We put up lights and we decorate our houses and we do all kinds of crazy things because we're honoring the Lord Jesus Christ. We want to exalt Him. Um, but unfortunately, in the world we live, there are people who really, really, really struggle at this time of the year. Uh, this past week I did two funerals. I can't imagine what it must be like with the festivity of all the, the season, <laughs> having to gather over a loved one who's deceased and passed away and gone and ushered into eternity. And death knows no boundaries. We don't know when it's going to happen. <laughs> we know it's going to happen, pending the Lord's return. We're guaranteed that. But we're here today to celebrate Christ. And even though it may be a hard time for you this time of year, I pray that you'll look through all the gloom and the history of this holiday, maybe for you personally, and see, at least begin to see some of the joy that's possible when you know the Savior. I pray that the blessing, the service has been a blessing. Isn't that wonderful? I just love to hear babies crying, man, in the service. That's good. I'm not, I'm not trying to call you out, brother. That's good. You can leave her here. That's good. We need more of that. Amen. Um, but I pray your heart's been encouraged so far and comforted, really, with the songs, the hymns, the Rudy's song he sung, um, 
and now I pray that it's, your heart is prepared for the teaching of God's Word. We do this every week. You know, I've been preaching a Christmas message here in this pulpit for the past 25 years. And sometimes, you know, I scratch my head every year. Well, what am I going to say next year? You know, already, we talked about the angels. We talked about the manger. We talked about the wise men. We talked about everything. And this past week, I realized that it was Christmas Eve this Sunday. And I thought, wow, I can finally preach a Christmas Eve on a Sunday on Christmas Eve, a message. So today, I'm going to revisit a message that I preached about 10 years ago, but it wasn't on Christmas Eve. But tonight, I get to, to today, I get to preach it on, on the day before Christmas. And I entitled the message, basically, Twas the Night Before Christmas. Twas the Night Before Christmas. And, you know, we, we know that little poem that was written. We probably all have it memorized I have it written here just in case I forgot it, but it was the night before Christmas and all through the house, not a creature, right, was stirring, not even a mouse. The stockings were all hung by the chimney with care and hopes that St. Nick would soon be there, and it goes on and on and on. In many homes, that little story at this time of year has become a Christmas tradition. You read it to your children. I remember hearing it when I was a little boy in elementary school seeing it on Christmas specials, people reading that. And, uh, you know, a lot of us have it committed. We, we know it in, in our hearts. Uh, someone wrote actually a Christian version of that poem. There's several out there, but I thought I'd read this one to you this morning. And it goes this way. "'Twas the night before Christmas and all through the house, not a creature was praying, not one in the house." Their Bibles were laid on the shelf without care because mom and dad were just too busy to care. The children were dressing to crawl into bed, not once ever kneeling or bowing their heads. Mom's wrapping gifts to put under the tree while dad's making sure there's nothing wrong with the we. Remember the Sony we? (laughs) This is kind of a dated one, obviously. I was trying to think of something else to put in there, but I couldn't think of anything, so we just went with we. When all of a sudden there arose such a clatter and Dad sprang to his feet to see what was the matter, away down the hallway he flew like a flash looking for the culprit that caused such a crash. He stopped in his tracks to take in the sight of angels declaring the real reason for the night. It was Jesus, they said, not Santa or elves. You have made this celebration more about yourselves. The shame Dad felt made him cover his head. Jesus was the real reason, just like the angels said. And though Dad possessed worldly wisdom and wealth, he cried when he thought of it in spite of himself. Now peace, now joy, now goodness and love, on mercy and grace, now look to above, for God sent his son to die for your sin. The battle was waged, he fought, and you win. A free gift was given on that blessed night, the gift of salvation, a gift you can't buy. Dad fell to his knees, consumed with regret, because he hadn't given Jesus his place of honor yet. 
he stood and he cried as angels rose out of sight. This Christmas would be different starting tonight. You know, Christmas time is a time to have fun, to rejoice with family, to have fellowship. But it's also a time to reflect on the past year, on how you dealt with your Heavenly Father. This is the most really important thing to us here on earth. While it's quite true that we don't know exactly when Jesus was born, I don't think it was December 25th, we do take one year, the world does really, to celebrate the fact that he was born. He was born in a human body. Francis Thompson put it this way, Little Jesus, wast thou shy, once in, in just as small as I? And what did it feel to be out of heaven and just like me? See, Jesus Christ came down to earth. He took on a human body. He had real feelings. He sweat, real sweat. If you cut him, he bled red. <laughs> he was human. He got frustrated at times. He got overwhelmed at times as a human being. Even though being God the whole time. And I want to ask the question this morning, what was happening in heaven as Jesus was being born on earth? What was happening? Do you ever think of that? We may not know that part of the Christmas story. We know about the angels, no doubt. We know about the shepherds. We know about Caesar's decree and Mary and Joseph having to flee to Bethlehem. We know about the wise men in the manger. We know about the star that that led them from the east. But this possibly might be here this morning, a part of the Christmas story we may not know. It's, It's really Christmas according to Jesus. Christmas according to Jesus. What was on our Lord's mind as he was being born? You may be surprised to know that the Bible actually gives us the answer. If you turn over to Hebrews chapter 10, Hebrews chapter 10, in our church we we stand for the reading of the God's word, so I would ask if you can to stand to your feet, and I'm just going to read simply verses 5 through 7 of Hebrews chapter 10. It says there, consequently when Jesus came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Verse 7, then I said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. Father, we ask you to bless this word to our hearts as we study it together here this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You may be seated. This is the story according to Jesus the Christ. We know Luke's version. We know Matthew's version. Well, here it tells us what Christ was thinking the night before Christmas 2,000 years ago. It's a quote from Psalm chapter 40, verses 6 to 8. 
What does our Lord emphasize in these, these verses here? I just want to share four quick points with you. The first one is our Lord's existence did not begin at Bethlehem. Jesus Christ did not begin at Bethlehem. It tells us there that as he was coming into the world, when Christ came into the world, and we think, well, that's when he began. No, no, he began long. He had no beginning, actually. (laughs) He's eternal. This speaks to us of the pre-existence of Christ in heaven. Some theologians call this the councils of eternity. In other words, there was a divine agreement among the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit that the Son would enter the human race and offer Himself as the Savior. Our Lord did not begin at Bethlehem. As the second person of the Trinity, He's eternal. He had no beginning. He's God. That's why he could say in John chapter 8, verse 58, when he was talking to the religious leaders, he says, before Abraham was, what? I am. In other words, the Son existed eternally with the Father. Someone asked me a couple weeks ago, why did the birth of Christ only... Why was it only recorded in Matthew and Luke, but not in Mark and John? And it's simply because the purpose of the Gospels that were being written, and we kind of went over this a little bit last week. Mark wants to emphasize, he was writing to Romans, he wanted to emphasize the power of Christ, the servanthood of Christ. They didn't care how he got there. They just wanted to see his power and how he served. Whereas when... In the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew was writing to a Jewish audience. We learned last week that genealogy is everything in the Jewish mind. They don't care what you say or what you do. They want to know where you came from. Who's your daddy? Who's your granddaddy? That's what they want to know. And so that's the the difference in those. And in John's case, he goes all the way back even before the birth of Christ. We've seen that as we've studied through the Gospel of John. In the beginning was the what? The Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word was Christ. He has always existed. Remember one fact. Christmas marks the human birth, the human birth of the Lord Jesus, but it does not mark the beginning of His existence. When we gather together at Christmas time and we celebrate the birth of Christ, we're speaking in human terms. That's when he, as God, took on a human body. When I used to teach young people, I'd say, yeah, Jesus was God in a bod. That's what he was. Some people say, well, was he 50% God and 50% man? No, he wasn't. He was 100% God, 100% man. You say, that, that, that's impossible. Right. That's why the Bible says, with God, all things are possible. That would otherwise be seemingly impossible. There's a lot of mysteries to that, but I want you to hold on to the fact that Jesus Christ, his existence did not begin at Bethlehem because he was God. He was eternal. Secondly, I just want to share with you that he came, why? To take away our sins. It tells us such in verses 4, 5, and then 11. Verse 5, in our text, it says, you did not want sacrifice and offering. What does this mean? 
You have to understand, Jesus came, he was born to replace, really, the, the failed Jewish system of animal sacrifice. Think about this. This would, when, when, when they would read this in the Jewish mind, this was a shock to them. They go, what do you mean you don't want sacrifice and offering? That's all we do. That's why we have a priest. For centuries, they have offered bulls and goats and lambs, as God prescribed in the Old Testament, as a sacrifice on an altar for the people's sins. And they did this because they believed sincerely that this is what God wanted from them. It wasn't just an empty exercise. They were not wrong in what they did, but they didn't understand the truth of Hebrews 10 4. 10.4 says, For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. They didn't know that. They didn't understand that. They just looked at the people, and as much as they sinned, they said, Oh man, we've got to sacrifice some more animals. Every priest stands day after day after day ministering and offering the same sacrifices time after time after time. And guess what? They can never take away anybody's sins. Priests in the Old Testament spent their days in a routine of sacrifice and offerings. One after the other. Morning, noon, night, day in, day out, week in, week out, month in. Month out, year after year, decade after decade, century after century. During the 1,500 years from the time of Moses all the way to the time of Christ, tens of thousands of lambs and goats and bulls were offered on an altar to be sacrificed before God to make atonement for the sins of the people. That's what he means when he says day after day, time after time. The same sacrifices were offered. And yet, animal blood can never take away sin. Ever. Suppose you took all the blood that was offered on all those years, on all the Jewish altars, over all those centuries, offered by the priests, doing God's will, obeying God's law, sincerely doing what God told them to do, sacrificing these bulls and these goats, Lambs, until there was a river of blood flowing from the altar. You stop and you say, well, what does all that animal blood amount to? How many sins does that forgive? The answer is none. Amazingly, none, not one. That's a shocking fact. A stunning reality. It's really a sobering truth. It would have been... Incredible for a Jewish person to hear that. Isaac Watts, who wrote a lot of our hymns back in 1709, he wrote a hymn and he entitled it this, Not All the Blood of Beasts. (laughs) Could you imagine me saying, please turn in your hymnals to hymn number 442. Not all the blood of beasts. You'd probably run out the back door. What kind of church is this, right? Well, here's what he says. Here's, here are the words to a couple of the phrases of this, this hymn. One says this, Not all the blood of beasts on Jewish altars slain could give the guilty conscience peace or wash away the stain. 
As weird as that ham is, he's got it right. And then in another stanza, he actually gives the gospel. He says this, but Christ, the heavenly lamb, takes away our sin. A sacrifice of nobler name, the richer blood than they. See, that's entirely right. Jesus Christ came to do what animal sacrifices could never, ever do. He came to deal with my sin, with your sin, once and for all. And you can see this in Hebrews 5, 10.5. He says, you prepared a body for me. You prepared a body for me. On one level, this means that Christ's birth wasn't just an afterthought in God's plan. It's not like they're in heaven and they're watching Adam and Eve down there in the garden. Everything's perfect. God created everything good, remember? And then they mess up. They sin. And they all look at each other in heaven and go, what are we going to do now? I don't know. Oh, man. Oh, you know, and they take a vote. Jesus, you got to go down there and save him. No, that's not how it played out. They're God. They don't learn anything. They know exactly everything. The fulfillment of all the promises made in the Old Testament was fulfilled in the birth of Christ, in Christ's life. This wasn't an afterthought from God. At a deeper level, it means that his body was prepared for him so that years later, he could offer himself as the once-for-all sacrifice for sin when he died on the cross. Just as that lamb was prepared for sacrifice, Jesus comes, the Bible says, as a lamb, the lamb of God, to take away our sin. That's, that's something to rejoice about, is it not? To thank God for. That he came to take away our sin. That he just didn't exist from Bethlehem on. That he's eternal. Well, the third thing I want to leave you with is that he came to do God's will. He came to do God's will. James Montgomery Boyce points out in his um, The Christ of Christmas book, he, he points out that, you know what? Christ came into the world knowing his purpose from the very beginning. You say, what do you mean by that? That could be said of no other baby. Did you know what your purpose was before you were born? <laughs> no. You didn't even know who you were going to be born to. You didn't know where you were going to be born. You didn't know how you were going to be born. You didn't know how your life was going to go. You didn't know nothing. Nothing. Christ knew everything in advance of his birth. Think about this for a moment with me. You know, many of us will gather with family, with friends, and we're heading out tonight on a plane to go up to Idaho visit with the grandkids and my daughter and son-in-law. It's neat to get together with them again and see how they're progressing in life, see how they're growing in their walk with Christ, see how they're, they're growing and maturing in their age. And I'm always wondering, what, what's going to happen to them? Because I'm not assured of anything. I can't be assured that they're all going to live for the Lord for the rest of their lives. I don't know. When I pray for them, I ask God to keep them safe, to help them in their, their, with their health and 
Pray that they continue in their love for the Lord and grow up to serve the Lord. But I don't know what God is calling them to do. I don't know what God's plan for them is. I don't even know what God's plan is for me. I mean, we may get on a plane tonight and you'll never see us again until you get to heaven. I don't know, right? You don't know. Nobody's guaranteed tomorrow. You have no idea. And yet we spend so much time focusing on things like that, and that's good because it's family, it's important. But it comes down to, what do I have to do? I have to trust the Lord. I pray for them because I trust the Lord. I I entrust them into their care, into his care. And you know what? Um, Each one has a, a place in God's plan. Each one of your relatives has a place in God's plan. We don't know how it's going to all work out. But we pray for them based on the promises of God. And we leave the outworking of all the details into his hands. But listen, with Christ, he knew what his destiny was from the very beginning. There was nothing unknown to him. The Bible says he came to do God's will. Sometimes, as parents and grandparents even, we have plans, right? We have a vision for our grandchildren or our child. We, we, we think of certain things and, oh, they're going to do this, you know. And maybe you have a family business and you're training your child to take over the business one day. Um, a lot of times, it never works out. And mom and dad are left holding the bag thinking, oh, well, Junior was going to take over, but now he's not going to. What do I do now? And sometimes those dreams of our children and grandchildren don't come to pass because children often go their own way, do they not? They choose maybe a different school than you went to. Maybe they choose a different career. Maybe they aren't interested in the family business. But guess what? Christ was not like that at all. Even as an infant, he had come with and for a purpose. It's not as if the Father in heaven had to convince Jesus to do this. He didn't have to give his son a pep talk. Okay, son, here's what you're going to do. You're going to go down there. You're going to be born of a virgin. I know, it's kind of weird, but you're going to be born of a virgin, and then you're going to live a perfect life, and then you're going to die this horrible death on a cross. But on the third day, you're going to rise from the... Ready? Break. Go. No, that's not how it played out. That's not how it played out at all. He knew all of that before he was ever even born. And yet he still came anyway. Think about this. He came to do God's will. He knew God's will was for him to be born to this poor carpenter and this young woman to be run around as a a young child because of the threat of somebody taking his life. He knew beforehand of the disciples he chose which were going to turn on him, betray him. He knew beforehand who was going to deny him. He knew what it was going to feel like when they smashed that crown of thorns down on his brow. He knew what it was going to feel like 
and how many pounds of the hammer it was going to take for the spike to be run through his hands and his feet. He knew all that in advance. He knew most people wouldn't have anything to do with him. And yet, guess what? He came anyway. (laughs) He came anyway. Think about that. If you could have that kind of knowledge, it might be a blessing and it might not, right? I mean, if I told you when you leave this building, there's a big goon outside and he's going to basically beat the snot out of you if you walk out there after church. He's waiting for you right now. He's out there, really is. You'd probably look for another way out. Very few people say, I don't care, I'm just going to go out and get beat up. If you knew that was going to be the outcome of the fight, you were just going to be laying there in a pool of blood, most of us would say, yeah, I think I'm going to avoid that. Christ knew all this, yet he still came. He still came. There's a song, I think it's written by Chris Rice, it's called Welcome to Our World, and, and, and one of the stances says this, Fragile finger sent to heal us, tender brow prepared for thorn, tiny heart whose blood will save us, onto us is born. So wrap our injured flesh around you, breathe our air and walk our sod, rob our sin. And make us holy. Perfect Son of God. Welcome to our world. See, He came to do God's will. And lastly, here this morning, I just want to share this with you because this is probably the most important part. Only Jesus could pay our debt to God. Only Jesus could. It says the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. See, Christ came to earth with a definite purpose, with a plan. He came to do God's will. And He fulfilled that will when He died on that cross, bearing the sins of all those who would put their faith and trust in Him. That's the ultimate meaning of this angelic proclamation that we often read at Christmas time in Luke chapter 2, verse 11. For unto you is born this day in the city of David, What? A Savior. A Savior who is Christ the Lord. Christ, my friends, came to die. He came to die. Nothing else explains His birth. He perfectly fulfilled God's will when no one else could. He was the one. As a man, He died. And as God, he bore the sins of all those who had ever put their faith and trust in him. No one else could have done what Jesus did. No one. No one else was qualified. No one else was willing. No one else was available. (laughs) This is what was on his mind, really, the night before his birth, before Christmas, before the very first Christmas. It gives us a different perspective. An old Bible teacher, Harry Ironside, he liked to tell the story 
of Tsar Nicholas. You can look it up. Tsar Nicholas I of Russia. It seems that Tsar Nicholas had a very good friend who asked him to provide a son a job. His good friend had a son and he said, hey, my boy needs a job. Can you help him out? And the Tsar did. Nicholas gave him a job. And he appointed him as paymaster for a barracks in the Russian army. Pretty big responsibility for a young lad. Unfortunately, it turned out that the son was pretty morally weak. And soon, all the money that was entrusted to him was gambled away. <laughs> Almost all of it. And the story says that when word came that the auditors <laughs> were coming for a visit, just to examine the records, make sure everything's in place at the end of the year, the poor young man despaired. You can imagine. <laughs> Knowing that he was certain to be found out. And he calculated one evening the amount he owed, and the total came to a huge, huge debt far greater than he could ever, ever pay, even in his lifetime. And he determined that night, before the auditors would arrive the next day, that he would take his gun and he would commit suicide at midnight. So before going to bed, he wrote out a full confession, listing all the money he stole, writing underneath it these words. A great debt. Who can pay? Question mark. Because he was exhausted emotionally, as you can only imagine, he fell asleep, weary from all his calculations and emotional trauma. Well, guess what? Late that night, the czar himself paid this young lad a surprising visit to the barracks, as was his occasional custom. And seeing that the light was on, he peered into the room and he found the young man asleep with a letter of confession next to him. And he read the letter and instantly <laughs> he understood what had happened. And the story says he paused for a moment, thinking about what punishment to impose on this young lad who squandered away all his money. And then he bent over, and he wrote just one word on that paper of confession. And he left. Left the room. Well, eventually the young man woke up, realizing that he had slept past midnight. Taking his gun in the wee hours of the morning, he prepared to kill himself. And he looked down at the note that he had written, and he noticed that someone had written something under what he wrote. And under his words, a great debt, who can pay? This young lad saw just one word. The word was Nicholas. He was dumbfounded. <laughs> then he was terrified, as you can imagine, <laughs> realizing that the czar knew what he had done. 
and checking his records, he found that this signature was genuine. That Nicholas really was there. And that he really did sign his name under the question mark, who can pay? Finally, the thought settled in his mind that the Tsar knew the whole story and was willing to pay the debt himself. And resting on the words of his commander-in-chief, he fell back asleep. And in the morning, a messenger came from the palace with the exact amount that the young man owed. A debt only the Tsar could have paid. And the Tsar did pay. I trust you see the importance of that little story. Only Jesus, only Jesus could pay our debt to God. Only Jesus could. And that's why he says the word became flesh and lived among us for that purpose so he could pay our debt. He pitched his tent here, his life here for 33 some years that he might pay in his own blood the debt that we owe for our own sin. I don't think you're naive enough to say that you're perfect here today, that you have never sinned or you never will sin. Most of us stand before a holy God condemned of our sin. We stand here today, though, precisely where this young man stood. And when he realized, as he calculated the debt that he owed, a great debt who can pay? It's the same thing for us. Who can pay for our sin? Our sins are so great. Only Jesus can. And guess what? He did. It's done. He does. This is why he came. This is the real meaning of Christmas. See, when Christmas arrives, family gather together, we open up gifts But you know what? Here is a gift that God has given to us. Maybe it's not wrapped in bright paper with a bow and fancy ribbon. But his gift is, it's really wrapped in swaddling clothes. And it's a gift that's lying in a manger. It's the gift of his son. It's for you. It's for me. And guess what? The gift is still there. The gift is still there. It has to be personally received. And I can't, I'm here to tell you this morning, you can never really truly enjoy Christmas until you look into the Father's face and tell him thank you. Thank you for the gift of your son. Have you done that? Have you received the gift of Christ? Christina Rossetti wrote this. She says, what shall I give him poor as I am? If I were a shepherd, I'd give him a lamb. If I were a wise man, I'd do my part. But what shall I give him? I'll give him my heart. Have you done that? Have you ever given Christ your heart? Have you ever looked at your sin and become so overwhelmed to realize, wow, I can't, I can't fix this? I've tried for years trying to fix this. I've tried to go to church. I've tried to do this, tried to be religious, tried to be good to people, all this stuff. But that burden of sin is still residing on you. No one else can make this decision for you. Only you can. 
And if you're not ready to make that decision, I understand perfectly. Nothing I can compel you, really, or say can compel you to come to Christ, to trust Him as your Lord and Savior. But if you are ready, I can tell you that there's no better time than the night before Christmas to receive his gift. The Bible says in John 1.12, he gave the right to become God's children to everyone who believed in him. Have you ever received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Would you like to do that right now? You can. Let's bow in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the gift of life in Christ. We thank you for his birth. We thank you for his life. We thank you for his death. We thank you for his resurrection. Lord, if there's anyone here this morning who is yet to put their faith or trust in Christ, who, who hasn't done that and yet even now in the quietness of this moment, they're realizing this is something that is drawing me. This is something that I need to do. It's not hard. It's not difficult. It's basically understanding your position before a holy God. Knowing that you're a sinner. Knowing that you've done things that God does not approve of. And you confess those things to the Lord. Whether it's word, whether it's deed, whether it's thought. You confess them to Christ and you ask Him to be your Savior. If you're here this morning and you say, you know what, I know that Jesus lived. I know that Jesus died on a cross for me. I know that He rose from the dead on the third day. And pastor, here this morning with all my heart, I'm trusting in Jesus and in Jesus alone for my salvation. You can cry out to Him and say, please forgive me for my sins. Save me. Come into my heart, Lord Jesus. Make me a brand new person. When you pray that prayer from a sincere heart, God will save you. I have no doubt in my mind. All of us, most of us here today, have come to a point in our life where we cried out to the Lord, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. And He saved us. He made old things new. He forgave us of the burden of the sin that we're carrying around daily. And we're just here to tell you, you know, you can come to church 24-7, 365 days a week for the rest of your life. That's not going to save you. <laughs> Joining a church is not going to save you. Being baptized is not going to save you. Reading your Bible is not going to save you. Praying is not going to save you. The only thing that's going to save you is putting your faith, your trust in Christ and in Christ alone. And Father, we pray as believers here today that we would be encouraging to those around us this time of year, that we would point them, that we would be reflectors of Jesus Christ, that we would point them to Christ. It's not about us. We're just fallen. We're, we're sinners just like everybody else. There's nothing holy about us. We're dealing with life like everybody else. And yet we have trusted God and His sovereign hand in our lives to further that work in our lives. And so we trust Him each and every day. And because of that, we have a joy deep down in our hearts. It's not affected by our 
happenstance. It's not happiness, it's joy. And it's a divine joy that God and God alone can give us. And I pray that that would spill over to people in our own family, in our neighborhood, people we brush up against each day. That we would have a positive effect, an eternal effect in the lives of people. And we look forward to spending time with family and friends. We pray you bless our festivities and, and all that we do. Keep us safe if we're traveling. And Lord, we thank you for your goodness and your grace. Thank you for the gift of your son, Jesus Christ. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. And all God's people said, amen. Let's stand together and we'll close with one last song.